Jesus promises the Holy Spirit as a gift to his disciples. And he says, after I ascend to the Father, the Father is going to give you this gift, and this gift is going to fill you, it's going to empower you, and it's going to help you in this mission that I have given to you. Apart from this gift of the Holy Spirit, you can't fulfill this mission. And Jesus says, you're going to do things that I've done. You're going to do even greater things than I've done. Well, that's not in our own human strength. That's only through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be in John 15 for a moment, but I I want us to take note of a small verse. It's actually half of a verse that concludes John 14 and begins John 15. And you understand why the the people that, that split up John's gospel into different chapters, they said, oh, this is a great place to start a new chapter. We're going to start a new chapter here. Because here's how John 14 concludes. Jesus gives this promise of the Holy Spirit that the, that the Father is going to give you this gift that's going to empower you, it's going to fill you, you're never going to be alone, you don't have to be afraid. And as, as, uh, as John 14 concludes, we read this. Come now, let us leave. And Jesus says to his disciples, they're in, there in the upper room, given this teaching about the Holy Spirit, given this teaching about loving your neighbor, given this teaching about uh, a washing feet and servant leadership and, and all of that in John 13 and 14, and he concludes it by saying, come now, let's go. Let's, let's leave. Let's, let's take a walk. Now, it would be easy for us to just rush right over this, but if I've learned anything in 20 years of trying to interpret the Gospel of John, it's that there's no detail that isn't just dripping with meaning and symbolism. There's so many little Easter eggs like this all throughout John's gospel that when you really look into it, John's trying to tell us something theologically. Um, in fact, there's, there's some of these details that scholars actually don't even have any clue about. They're like, we don't really know what to make of that. For instance, John chapter 21, there's a miraculous catch of fish, and John gives us the exact number. 153 fish were caught. And we have scratched our head thinking, man, what was he trying to say there? What is the significance of that number? And um, I got a feeling we're going to get to heaven and we're going to actually talk to John about it. And he's going to be like, nothing, guys. Like, we counted them. There was 153. <laughs> like, I, I think that's how that conversation is going to go. Well, we, we counted them. There's 153. And that's, that's all it was. But other than that, like all these other details, in his, they're just dripping with meaning and symbolism Why did John tell us that they were leaving the upper room and they were going out? You have to do a little bit of geography. We know they ended up in the Garden of Gethsemane across the Kidron Valley. We know basically where the upper room is. And if you were to draw a line from where the upper room is to the Garden of Gethsemane, and and I've been to both of those places, in the middle of those places, you would have to walk right by the temple complex. And so it's not a stretch of our imagination to say that on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is imparting this teaching to his disciples, as they're taking a walk, it would not be a stretch to imagine them walking through the temple courts one more time. I can imagine Jesus wanting to walk through the temple courts, wanting to be in this sacred place, because the drama that was about to unfold in that place what was going to demand so much of them, but here's one of him, but here's one more chance for Jesus to be in this most sacred place for the Jewish people. And so there he is, I imagine them in the temple courts. And if they're in the temple courts at the entrance of the court of the Jews, 
is a large column with a, a large door in the middle, and these columns stretch up, and wrapped around these columns would have been a grapevine, a grapevine fashioned out of gold. And it adorned these columns, and it was beautiful, and it was opulent. And what wealthy families would do is they would donate gold, or they would donate other precious metals, and they would donate precious things, and artisans would fashion grape leaves onto this vine. Sometimes the grape leaves, the historian Josephus tells us that sometimes the grape leaves would be as big as a person. So imagine these, this opulent golden grapevine circling these columns that lead into the court of the Jews, and wealthy people have affixed leaves to this grapevine, symbolizing their connection to the vine. And the vine represented Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referenced as the vineyard of God. And, and so the, 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 the play there for wealthy people is to, to fashion this leaf made out of gold and attach it onto the vine and to say, look at us, we're somebody. We're connected to the historic election of Israel by God. This golden leaf is going to stand here for as long as this temple is here. And our descendants are going to come into this court of the Jews and they're going to look and they're going to see there's our leaf, there's our contribution, there's our connection to the election of Israel. And so it was a source of national pride. It was a national symbol. It was like our flag, if you will, or it was like some of our monuments in Washington, D.C., or it was the Mount Rushmore of Israelite identity. And it was a source of national pride. It was wrapped in gold, and these opulent leaves were there. And it, it constantly served as this reminder of Israel's destiny as a vine planted by the Lord's own choosing. There's something lost here in this national symbol. And it's real easy to notice a disconnect. Let's read the prophets. Let's read all the different places that Israel is referenced as the vine of the Lord. Let's go to the Old Testament. Let's see where God describes the people of Israel as a vineyard. And every time, without exception, every time the prophets make an analogy between a vineyard and the people of Israel, it is always in the negative connotation. Not that there's anything negative about being the vineyard of the Lord's own choosing, but there is always an indictment. The prophets always connect the failure of the vineyard to Israel's failed vocation in the world. And the most telling example of this is, is Isaiah 5. And the prophet is warning the people of their impending demise. The prophet is telling people that Nebuchadnezzar is going to knock down the gates. He's going to sack the city because you have failed to do things that God has called you to do. He's called you to be a particular kind of people. He's called you to produce a particular kind of fruit. And you've only produced sour grapes. And Isaiah embodies what several, several, several of the prophets also say in saying this, here's the indictment, Isaiah 5, 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed. He expected righteousness, but he heard a cry from the people. Here's the fruit that Israel failed to produce. Justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. 
Have you heard a lot of talk about justice these days? Have you heard a lot of talk about social justice and racial justice? About justice reform? We use the word justice a lot, and we use it in a lot of different contexts. Righteousness is a little bit of a churchy word. We don't hear that in common parlance as much as we do the word justice. But let's, rec- let's go back and sort of recapture a biblical understanding of what these words meant. We sort of have an idea of how they're used in our day, but what is it that Isaiah was saying? When, when he said, you failed to produce the fruit of justice and righteousness, what is it that Isaiah, what is the indictment that he is bringing against Israel? For starters, justice and righteousness are two banks of God's river of life that flows towards shalom. This, this, I want you to imagine, that's sort of a, a good image for me, is to think about this, this river of life that God has moving, flowing towards shalom or wholeness, and on the banks of this river are justice and righteousness. They, 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 they move the river of God's life towards its, its intended goal. And the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. And almost equally, it's used in two different contexts. One is retributive justice. There's a punitive aspect to this. You do this, there is a consequence. But equally so, there is a restorative component to mishpat. There are two sides to this coin. It's both, it's both retributive and restorative. And so justice envisions not only a consequence for actions or consequence for sins, but also a restoration to what has been taken away or what has been denied. So there's two sides to this coin of, of mishpat. And then righteousness, a lot of times we confuse that with like moral adherence. A, purchase, a person is a righteous person if they obey certain laws, if they keep their nose clean, if they don't commit certain sins, especially this list of sins that we have over here that are more egregious than others. And so someone is, we, we think of someone as righteous if they adhere to this strict moral code. But that's not at all how the Bible uses the term. It's a relational term. And righteousness refers to simply, here's an easy way to remember it, right-relatedness. Right-relatedness. How is it that Israel can be a people that produces justice, both retributive and restorative, and right-relatedness. How is it that Israel can function in the world and bring people back into right relationship with God and right relationship with each other? And so here's the fruit that Israel failed to produce. Justice, making individuals and communities whole in both a retributive and a restorative fashion, and righteousness, living in right relationship with others. And so here are the two banks of God's river of life flowing towards shalom, this vision of human flourishing that God has throughout the Old Testament. And Isaiah stands before the people and he says to the vineyard, you have produced sour grapes. You have not been a people of justice. You've not been a people of righteousness. And so at the time of Jesus, however, People would come to the temple, they'd look at this national symbol, and they'd be filled with pride. Look at the vineyard. We are the vineyard of God's own planning. We have been elected by God above all the nations, and we have this amazing temple 
that Herod, who's in cahoots with the Romans, sustains for us. But we sort of overlook that a little bit. And we have this gold vine that wraps around these columns. This is a symbol of national pride for us. We're going to whitewash the fact that we've never lived up to our true vocation. We're going to whitewash the fact that the prophets again and again and again offer an indictment to the vineyard of God. We're going to, we're just, we're, we're going to ignore all that and we're just going to let this piece of propaganda stand in the temple courts to remind us again and again that, that we are the elect. We are the people of God. We are the vineyard. We are the choice vineyard of God's own choosing. And so the people would look at it in its opulence and how marvelous it was, and they would say, well, look how amazing this is. I mean, this can't be wrong. I mean, we can't be wrong. If you're wrong, you don't have a temple like this. If you're wrong, you don't have an amazing golden vine like this. I mean, rich people aren't going to put their wealth into making these amazing gold leaves if it's wrong. Rich people are bought in. Obviously, it must be right. So here's this vine this golden vine, this, this statement of, of, of who Israel was or who they thought they were. And behind this marvelous display were years of neglect. Thousands of people who were denied justice and were living in relationships that weren't squared up with how God wanted them to be. They were living in a place where their voice didn't matter, their place, their position didn't matter. They'd been ignored. And so on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus and his disciples are taking a walk, he stands before these columns, and he stands before this golden vine, and he stands before this opulent display of propaganda. And he says to his disciples, and he says to us, I am the vine. And my father is the vine grower. What you need to know is that he removes branches in me that does not bear the fruit of justice and righteousness. See, every branch that bears fruit, he gives attention to and he prunes it to make it more fruitful. Oh, you, you have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. And so disciples, abide in me, not this. Disciples, abide in me as I abide in you. And disciples know this. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, which is me, neither can you unless you abide in me. Wow. You see what Jesus is saying? This is the final of seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And it appears that of all the I am statements, this, this might be the, the least controversial. I mean, he stands before the religious people in John chapter 7, and he says, before Abraham, I tell you, I am. Woo! That's going to get you in trouble. Pretty obvious that he's getting in trouble there. But surely he's not going to get in trouble just for calling himself divine. I mean, he's just making an analogy. But when you stand in front of this symbol of national pride and you say to a group of Jewish people, I am the vine. 
I am the source of your election and calling. You are nothing unless you are connected to me. You are nothing unless you are connected to what God is doing through me. Unlike Israel, Jesus is the one who is rooted in this relationship to the Father. And this relationship brings fruit. We see the fruit of Jesus' life. We see how he's bringing restorative justice. We see how he's putting people into right relationship. He's bearing fruit in every aspect of his life because he is connected to the Father. And he is saying to his disciples, be connected to me, abide in me, so that your life might bear fruit. Wow. And what Jesus was saying to those disciples and what he's saying to us is, is what story, what story are you going to abide in? What story, are, are, what story is going to be the dominant narrative of your life? <laughs> um, I, I, I have a, a, a friend. Well, so I, I, I want to tell you about this little conversation. Uh, it helped put things in perspective for me. I, I coach Luke's baseball team. And uh, sometimes they play on Sundays, and I'm not able to be there. But, but one morning, they had an 8 o'clock game and on a Sunday. And so I got there at 7.15 and got the kids all fired up, and let's go, let's play. And then, of course, about 8.15, I had to leave to come and, and, uh, and do this thing that God's called me to do. But as I'm leaving, one of the parents says, All right, Coach Mark, see you. Go save those souls. And, um, and, 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 and I wanted to say to her, You know, Saving the souls is not the hard part. Teaching the souls to abide in Christ, that's the hard part. Like, that's the, like, the offer of the gospel is, is a pretty easy message for me. But teaching us to abide in Christ, teaching us to live like Jesus, ah, that's, that's where I covet your prayers. Because there are so many stories. There are so many stories that define our life. One of my favorite theologians, his name is Alistair McIntyre. He said this, I can only answer the question of what must I do after I have answered of which story do I belong? Of which story do I belong? And humanity has a tendency to attach itself to different stories. And these stories help us make meaning of the world. They help us make meaning of our experience. And the question I want you to wrestle with today is in what story do I belong? In what story do I belong? I was in downtown Bentonville not too long ago. I loved the little bagel shop there on Central Avenue, and I, I got a bagel, and I got a glass of water, and I took my bagel, and I went to the square, and I sat down on the park bench, and I began to get my phone out and return some emails and just kind of um, take in. Uh, it's a beautiful day. It's one of the rare days this spring that, in which it wasn't raining, and so there I was on the park bench, eating my bagel, returning my emails, thinking about what I needed to do with the rest of my day. And there was a group of young people, and they were handing out some literature, and, and they had on t-shirts. And the t-shirts had the emblem of the Black Lives Matter movement, and of course they said real, in big bold letters, they said, they said Black Lives Matter on the t-shirt. And they had some literature, and they were having some conversations with people in the square, and they were passing some things out. And, and I watched them interact with people, and I talked with them and, and heard where their heart was on some things and had a conversation with them, and, and it was a, a generally a, a pretty positive interaction. So here are these people, 
advocating for the Black Lives Matter on the Bentonville Square. And literally, at the same time that they are doing that, there were uh, two big Jeeps that rolled through the square. And not uncommon for big Jeeps to roll through the square. But on the back of these Jeeps were flagpoles. And these, uh, the, on the, the, the flagpoles had, um, of course, had an American flag on one, and on the other it had the police flag, which is a full black background with a thin blue line going through it. And these Jeeps were driving around the square. They actually made a lap around the square. Uh, and I don't know if they knew that people were on the square having these conversations or what, but apparently they just felt led to, to take their big Jeeps and their flags and to just make a lap around the square twice, and, and, uh, and they just kind of headed on their way. And I thought about the convergence of those worldviews. I thought about the convergence of, of those ideas, how it's not common, or it's not uncommon in our area to see people with these flags, and they're flying the police flag, and, and they're flying other types of flags as well. So begin to think about that and begin to think about how Bentonville is becoming a, a place where these worldviews are, are sort of starting to get smashed up. And I was just about ready to walk back to the church and then a truck rolled through the square. And this was like, yeah, of course it was a truck and it had mud all over it and it had a flag on it as well. And this truck was donning the, what we know as the rebel flag or the Confederate flag, which my friend who's a historian will tell you this is the battle flag of Virginia. Uh, it's not the official Confederate States of America flag, but it has become a flag that represents a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And, and beginning to untangle what the rebel flag means to certain people and how it makes certain people feel and the intimidation it causes certain people and the the angst it causes certain people and the fear that it engenders in certain people is, is a really confusing conversation. All I can tell you is that in a matter of 45 minutes, worldviews and stories, they were combining. They were all converging on the Bentonville Square, the Black Lives Matter group. The police flag was parading in the Bentonville Square. The rebel flag made a lap around the Bentonville Square. And on my way back to the office, I noticed that a new flag had established itself on the Bentonville Square. A lot of people this month are talking about having pride in their sexual identity. And they identify in ways that are different than what we traditionally understand. And so the LGBTQ plus flag has now established itself uh, in our Bentonville landscape. And I thought, my word, what an, what an interesting day for me on the Bentonville Square. I, I, I went there to have a bagel and to return emails and I, I was able to look at the rebel flag. I was able to look at the police flag. I was, I was able to look at Black Lives Matter. And I was able to view the image of the LGBTQ plus community. And I can't make this up. I, I, I cannot make this up. I get back to the office 
And on my voicemail, yes, I still take voicemail, uh, but on my voicemail at the office was someone who knew, um, who, who kind of was an acquaintance of mine. Uh, they knew something about our church. And I, I should have written down the transcript of this, this voicemail because it, it was very unusual. Um, but, but this voicemail said, Pastor, this is so-and-so from so-and-so organization, and I am calling to get together a coalition of churches. There is a certain movement in Bentonville, and they're trying to make us like Fayetteville, and they're going to put the pride flag up everywhere, and we cannot have that in Bentonville. And I'm trying to get a movement together of churches who are going to stand and are going to make sure that this doesn't happen in our city. Please call me back, because we want to add you to the list of downtown churches who are taking a stand against this. You can't make this up. I'm just trying to have a bagel. I'm just, I'm just trying to have lunch. And what I've learned in these situations is to be slow to speak, quick to listen. James tells us that, right? Let's be slow to speak, be quick to listen. I did think for a minute, you know, I've never had a voicemail. I've never had a voicemail that said, Pastor, there are people parading around town with the rebel flag on their trucks. They are inciting fear and they're intimidating people and they're bringing back a racist heritage that has nothing to do with the people of God. And we need to get a coalition of churches together to stand for racial justice and equity and reconciliation because our neighbors of color deserve better than this. I've never had that voicemail wish I would. Don't you? I wish I would. But anyway, all these, all these worldviews coming together, and whether you like it or not, this is the new reality for where we live. Like, this is, this is the new American reality. The new American reality, the new Bentonville reality, is that worldviews are going to collide. There was a time in which we lived in a place where there was a dominant worldview. And everyone sort of agreed with this established set of values. And this established set of values had a seat in city hall, and they had a seat in local government. And this set of values could wield a certain amount of power. But friends, that day is no more. And the calling of the people of God is to continue to be a unique people. The calling of the people of God is to say, we don't need to have seats of power to be the unique people that God's called us to be. To be a people of justice and righteousness. In fact, the days that we are living right now are more like the early church. The early church filled with the Holy Spirit, with the unique message of Jesus. This early church, they were not at the center of power. But they rose to prominence and they transformed lives because of the way they lived. Because they were connected to the vine. Because they loved in ways that were otherworldly. Because they showed compassion like no one else. They were connected to the vine. And friends, what I am telling you, as these things come together. 
I, I want us to imagine here these, these, these things coming together. I want us to imagine Jesus standing in front of the rebel flag and the pride flag and the Black Lives Matter flag and the Blue Lives Matter. I want us to imagine Jesus standing in front of all of these stories, all of these stories that are trying to make meaning of the world, all of these stories that are trying to divide the world into us and them, enemies and non-enemies. I, I want us to imagine Jesus standing in front of that and saying, I am the vine. I am the only way that your life has eternal meaning. If you want your life to bear fruit, fruit that lasts, you must be connected to me. I am the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You want your life to matter? It only matters in me. You want the line between anarchy and order to be sustained? It's only through me. You, you, want, you have to surrender your heritage and your hate to my lordship. No one has given more so that all might be welcomed to God's table than me. The gospel is the most inclusive message this world has ever seen. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so rest in me, abide in me, remain in me. Oh, that we would be that people. Jesus goes on to say, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. Jesus is saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so how do we produce fruit that will last? Because I think if we're all honest this morning, you look at your, the years that you've been given, you look at the years that you might have ahead of you, and you're saying to yourself, I just want my life to count for something. I want my life to bear some kind of fruit that lasts. How does that happen? Maybe we need to recognize that all of these competing stories that I've mentioned today, and there are so many more, all of them represent a group of people that do not feel that they are in right relationship with the world. All of them represent a group of people that do not feel heard. All of them represent a group of people that do not feel whole. And so how does the church keep from failing in its vocation the way Israel did? And Jesus lays it out. You want your life to count? You want to bear fruit that lasts? Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No greater love than this, that to lay, one's, lay down one's life or one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And I want to jump down to the bottom of this text. I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. Jesus is saying to the church, a church in the midst of a ton of different worldviews, a ton of different stories, and he's saying to the church, who I'm calling you to be, is this example that I've given you in John 13, where I stooped down and I washed your feet. I showed you what selfless love looks like. You have received selfless love, and now what the world is needing for you, is for you to go out through the power of the Holy Spirit and to reciprocate that love to the world. There are people who fly flags on their trucks who do not feel that they are being heard. 
There are people who are parading in cities all across America and they're waving lots of different flags because they feel that no one cares about them, that they are not truly loved. And what I'm calling you to do is to be a people who goes out and you share with them what you have received from me. I have called that you have, I have called you to love one another. This is how fruit is produced that lasts. A life of fruitfulness must be planted in relationship with Jesus and nourished through obedience to his commands. I pray that our life would not be ordered by any other story than the story of God. And when we are rooted in Jesus, and we are rooted in this relationship, our life will bear fruit. I've told you this story before, but I want to reintroduce you to my friend John. I met John at General Assembly in 2017, and this is the, the annual or the, the gathering of, of people in the Church of the Nazarene. It happens every four years. And John, when he was a young man, maybe 12 or 13 years old, there was a brutal civil war that broke out in his country of Sudan. And he was one of thousands of children who took a long journey from where he lived in Sudan to neighboring Uganda. Uh, They're a group of children known as the Lost Boys. And many children died on this trek from where they were to the country of Uganda, where they were able to find some kind of safety from the civil war that was going on. But what happened to those children is they had no country to call their own. And so the UN set up a refugee camp, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people began to live in this refugee camp on the border between South Sudan and Uganda. They are literally in no man's land. They have no country to call their own. Uganda's too poor to take them, and if they go to, back to Sudan, they're going to be killed because of their ethnicity or their religion. And so this is where John grew up. John grew up in a refugee camp, and one of the hopes, one of the options available, the, the, number, the number one hope for anyone living in a refugee camp any, anywhere in the world is not to come to the United States. It's not to come to Europe. It's not to go to Australia. The number one hope is to go back home. They want to go back to their home, to their people, where they live, but they can't because of violence and persecution. And so here's option two, to be resettled. To be resettled in a country that has the means to receive them. And it's highly selective. It's, an, it's, a, it's such a long process to be selected to be resettled. But they drew John's number. John had a chance to be resettled in Australia, a developed country with the resources to take him where he could begin a new life. But the time between John arriving as a young man in, Uganda, in the Ugandan refugee camp to being selected to go to Australia was a period of 20 years. And you know what people do in this period? They fall in love, and they start a family, and they establish churches, and they begin to create a life in a small geographical area that they can't really leave. But he began to carve out a life for himself, and he felt God calling him to ministry. And you know, uh, this week, speaking of flags on the Bentonville Square, I was, I was on the Bentonville Square this week, and the Walmart Museum put out all the different flags that Walmart is in. I think there's like 32 countries that Walmart has of a story in. And I thought, isn't that cute? 
They've got operations in 32 countries. You know, one day they'll catch up with the Church of the Nazarene and they'll have operations in like 163 different countries. But that's cute. I, I'm glad that they're, I'm glad that, you know, they're, they're making an effort. There is not a Walmart in Uganda. There is not a Walmart in South Sudan. But there is, in the Ugandan refugee camp, a network of churches of the Nazarene. Because there is a group of people filled with the Holy Spirit that are abiding in Christ that says Walmart won't go there because the GDP of that entire area is less than the annual revenue of a super center. Walmart won't go there, but the people of God will go there because they're resting in the vine. They're remaining in the vine. They're connected to what God has called them to do. And so John began to plant house churches in this refugee camp. He established this network of churches. It's a vibrant ministry. It's resulted in many people coming to Christ. And John shared his story at General Assembly. And he said, my number was pulled. I had the chance to be resettled in Australia. I was excited. It was the dream. I've always wanted to do that. My family's always dreamed of doing that. And you know what God called us to do? He called us to remain. He called us to abide he called us to stay. And we told the UN something that very few people in that situation have ever said. We choose this place because God is here. And God has given us a ministry here in this place. We choose to abide. We choose to stay. We want to be connected to the mission of God. We want to be a, a people that bear fruit the fruit of justice and righteousness in this place. John did not make that decision by his own human strength. He made that decision along with his wife and his family through the influence of the Holy Spirit. Because of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that led him to a place where he could live out this selfless love of God that had been poured into his life, he was then able to pour it out to others. And friends, that is who we are called to be today. This is how we are called to remain, to abide. It seems so passive, doesn't it? Oh, but when you do this, when you abide, when you make this choice, it might be controversial. It might demand something of you. But know that you are not alone, that the Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit is leading you. The Holy Spirit is empowering you. And we can be this people through his presence in our lives.